Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode six of Push Dose EMS brought to you by Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. My name is Jeff Matcha. I am the clinical education QA manager for the department. Uh, we're excited that everybody was able to come out and join us today, whether you're live or those of you that are listening to our recorded session. Uh, joining me today in no particular order, just as my camera shows me, uh, coming down my list, I have Linda Matrish, QA supervisor. Welcome, Linda. Good afternoon, everybody. Hi, Linda. Uh, going down, our new addition uh, to the team, uh, I'll give him a chance just briefly here to introduce himself, uh, Dr. Luke Grover. Welcome Hi, everyone. <laughs> Thanks a lot for having me. Um, my name is Luke Grover. I'm the new EMS fellow, of course, at MCW. I'm currently working as an attending at Freighter and Moreland Reserve Emergency Departments. Um, also be working closely with Milwaukee OEM and many other departments in the area. Look forward to meeting everyone, either in the ED or out in the field throughout the year. Thanks, Dr. Grover. Great to have you. Thanks for joining us today for the podcast. Uh, carrying on, uh, Associate Medical Director, Dr. Matt Chin. Dr. Chin, welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, Mr. Dan Pojar, EMS Division Director, welcome. Hello, good afternoon. And certainly, uh, last but not least at all, uh, EMS Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Welcome, Dr. Weston. Thanks, Jeff. Hello, everyone. Uh, so before we get deep-dived into our topics today, uh, we, I know we do have some updates from the office, so we'll start with uh, Dan. What do you got for us? Yeah, great. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, just some personnel change to make everyone aware of. Um, as some of you may have heard, uh, Christine Wetrish uh, ended up leaving to pursue a career in art as an artist. Uh, she uh, really enjoys doing the, the artwork stuff, so that was going to become her new passion here. So good luck to her. Standing in for her right now is Cassandra Liebel. She comes to us from the Milwaukee Police Department with more than 25 years of experience there. So she is the interim director um, and will be taking over um, for the OEM operations in the interim, and then we'll be recruiting for both the director and the deputy director, whichever uh, position doesn't get filled. Um, up next, uh, core team update. So some of you may have heard we're forming together what's called a core team. So community-oriented regional EMS is the idea. Um, so normally this is our uh, paramedic group that was going to be special events paramedics. Uh, and they were working at the venues like the Pfizer Forum, the Admirals, and the Zoo. Um, since most of those are shut down, uh, we are repurposing some of these teams' operations towards like the COVID testing efforts. Um, so more to come on this. Uh, one thing of note for the system is we are planning to reclassify some of those positions to uh, allow for EMTs to join our system or our team as well. So uh, once that's done uh, at the pace of county, we will get those positions communicated out to the system. Um, up next, uh, we have a stoplight pain study with Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. Uh, they will be uh, interviewing crews after they drop patients off at the hospital and trying to figure out the best way to uh, guide pain management in the pediatric population. So there will be some discussion there um, on tools and some ideas with them. So just look forward to that. And then finally, another study that's on the horizon. Uh, we're still learning some of the details, but uh, it sounds like it's going to be a ventilation-focused study uh, with some new technology and the Zoll cardiac monitors and the ability to measure tidal volume. So uh, the study is still being planned. Um, 
for release later, either later this year or very early next year. The timeline's still a little bit unknown, but uh, some uh, big studies on hyperventilation, patient outcomes, and the ability for EMS providers in the field to uh, have a more prescribed tidal volume. So those are my big updates. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks, Dan. Uh, definitely a lot going on in the system. Um, and with some more of those updates, a very busy man himself, uh, Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. So just a few quick updates here. I guess first, I just want to echo Jeff and welcome Dr. Grover to our system. So uh, last year, we had two EMS fellows, as you'll remember, Dr. Sinclair uh, and Dr. Engel. So Dr. Sinclair uh, has moved on. He is practicing in Illinois. He's doing some time in an emergency department down there, also doing some time with an EMS system uh, and doing very well from what I hear. Uh, Dr. Engel uh, has taken a little bit of a different path, so he's going to be sticking with us. Um, he is splitting his time clinically between Illinois and Wisconsin, so you'll see him sometimes in the emergency department over at Frederick, um, and he's also joining our medical director team. Uh, so Dr. Engel is going to be focusing on quality specifically. You know, Dr. Chin is our assistant medical director focusing on education, uh, and meanwhile, Dr. Engel will be an assistant medical director focusing on quality oversight. So he's gonna uh, help us to continue our continuous quality improvement process. Uh, he'll be working closely with Linda and the rest of the QI team. Uh, you'll see him more frequently on performance improvement reviews, uh, CQIP meetings, things like that. So we're very uh, excited to have Dr. Engel continue to be engaged in our system. Uh, and also very excited to have Dr. Grover joining us uh, for at least the next year. Uh, so you'll see him on podcasts, on meetings, uh, and uh, in the field as well. Uh, recently, we sent out a numbered notice uh, update. Um, there were a few updates in the latest numbered notice uh, regarding COVID-19. So one is just really emphasizing face coverings. We want, uh, obviously, patients, all patients, every patient we encounter, uh, a, a, as long as it fits your judgment, to be wearing uh, a face covering. Exceptions are those under age two, uh, those with trouble breathing, unable to remove their own mask, or, or others, you know, based on provider judgment. We also want family members, those that are in the immediate vicinity, to be wearing masks. We know COVID-19 uh, has certainly reached community spread, um, and whether people have symptoms or not, they very well may be spreading the virus. Uh, the highest contagious period um, is known to be uh, right before people become symptomatic um, is one of the most contagious times. So certainly we want to be putting a mask on all the patients we encounter uh, and all of the family members uh, in the immediate vicinity. And if people have cloth masks, just ask them to put it on. We don't have to necessarily give them uh, paper masks if they have their own uh, face covering of some sort. Um, on top of that, uh, a note on uh, N95 masks. So down under the PPE guidelines portion, uh, and it is, uh, somebody uh, mentioned this to me, it is indented. Uh, it doesn't need to be indented. It kind of implies that it's only for aerosol generating procedures and PNB patients. It's not. Uh, so basically, if your local supply chain is sufficient, if you have enough masks, uh, an N95 or higher should be used for all personnel providing direct patient care or traveling in the patient compartment for any known or suspected COVID patient encounters. It says or known, it should be foreknown. Uh, we'll update that on the next number. Notice apologies for that. But basically, uh, if you have the supplies, wear an N95 for your patient encounters, um, regardless of aerosol generating procedures. Um, we know that uh, surgical masks are fairly safe, uh, but N95s are even better. So if the supply chain warrants, uh, you can be wearing those masks as well. 
Next, a brief update on the DNC. Uh, brief because uh, there's not much going on with the DNC uh, in Milwaukee. In a the latest, I guess, in a series of disappointments for 2020, you can add to the list that the DNC um, will be uh, pretty close to 100% virtual. Um, there are still a few things going on in Milwaukee, uh, but not expected to be anything that would need uh, EMS interaction. So. Um, kind of changes our DNC planning, but that is the update for now. Uh, next update, second to last, our uh, subcommittee on equity. So as everybody knows, hopefully we have three subcommittees through admin review currently. Uh, it is the subcommittee on research, uh, subcommittee on guidelines and policies, and our subcommittee for new product reviews. Each of those subcommittees uh, has chair people and then also engagement from different departments. If anybody's engaged, uh, certainly you're, you're more than welcome to join. We have a few departments uh, representatives on each of those subcommittees. And we're adding a fourth subcommittee, the subcommittee on equity. The idea of this subcommittee will be to look at uh, system-wide practices, whether it's education, policies, guidelines, practices uh, with an eye toward equity um, and how we can be more equitable in our community. So We'll be talking about this more uh, tomorrow, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, but uh, anyhow at our next admin review meeting. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll get some good system engagement from the different departments on that. Lastly, uh, we're looking at BLS to ALS transition for our non-ALS departments. Um, been in close conversations with them. They're all uh, uh, eager to move forward um, from uh, uh, to ALS status. So. Uh, that is an exciting transition for their communities and for their community members. And uh, we're fully supportive of that and we'll help them move forward. And those are the main updates for now. I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Dr. Weston. Uh, terrific. So between uh, Dan and Dr. Weston, there's a lot of exciting changes, updates, moving pieces in the system right now. So look forward to seeing where this all shakes out in the end. To get us back on focus today and start really getting into the nuts and bolts of what we want to talk about it is, well, it's August, so we're moving through towards the end of summer here, uh, but it is definitely back to hot and sticky, uh, at least here in the Madison area. We had a nice little reprieve for a while in the 70s, but it's warm and hot this weekend. People are spending time outside, a lot of activities going on, especially with all the social distancing. People are enjoying parks and walks and bikes and things outside uh, where they can be a little bit further away from other folks. So along with all the enjoyment of the outside world uh, come some very specific calls that we'll see during the summer. And I wanted to break this podcast down really to change it up into two different topic areas and we'll bring in a couple different speakers on them. Uh, the first I'm gonna grab Dr. Chin, uh, dealing with this heat and humidity uh, and all the excitement and activities outside. We can definitely see that we're gonna start running into uh, more heat-related injuries. So, uh, Dr. Chin, if you're able, ready, willing, uh, kind of give us a breakdown of what we're looking at. You know, I know there's varying levels of, of heat emergencies um, and some different ways to approach it. So, 
Yeah, thanks, Jeff, uh, for the the introduction, the transition there. So uh, I think, it, you know, like you said, it's a really timely topic to talk about. We're kind of in the, in the middle of summer here. We're seeing a little streak of uh, a bunch of days above 80 plus here in this uh, the local Milwaukee area. So uh, I think, uh, again, a very timely topic to discuss. So so why are we talking about it to begin with? You know, what's the reason we want to talk about heat emergencies other than, you know, environmentally it makes sense to talk about now. But there's actually quite a bit of uh, um, medicine that you can talk about related to heat emergencies. So annually, uh, it's estimated that maybe six to 700 people die of heat stroke a year across the country. Obviously, that's probably a little bit less in the northern states and probably a little bit more emphasized a little bit in the southern states just uh, based on the, the temperatures in the geographic regions. But we, nonetheless, we still see some of those heat emergencies here in the area. We see, you know, at least traditionally before COVID, we saw a lot of, uh, you know, races and uh, mass gathering kind of events where people were doing outdoor sporting stuff. Uh, and we would see some uh, heat stroke and heat related emergencies there. So it's definitely something we still will see here. And as Jeff mentioned, now with people going out uh, and doing a lot of more outdoor activities than they may have done before, uh, we certainly have the opportunity to see that. Uh, and the mortality of heat stroke is actually pretty significant. So about 10% of people who suffer from heat stroke uh, actually die from it. Um, so uh, something that has a pretty significant uh, mortality rate associated with it and some easy interventions that we'll talk about kind of towards the end of this brief, uh, brief chat here about what you can do in the pre-hospital setting. Um, so just some basic background. I always like to start from the pathophysiology and hopefully put nobody to sleep, but, uh, but just some basics on kind of what is a heat emergency and how does it work. So as we all know, our body works really well to regulate temperatures. So we have receptors on the skin. We have receptors in the brain, that hypothalamus, that really tiny thing that you probably learned way back in your EMT or paramedic class that helps to regulate your body's temperature, really does a good job of doing that on a normal basis. It can mitigate, uh, you know, heat exposure by really changing cardiac output, changing vascular constriction um, to really get rid of heat pretty effectively on a normal basis. So if it, get, if it gets hot outside, the hypothalamus can say, hey, you know what, let's take that cardiac output and let's put it to the skin. Let's have some evaporative cooling. We have some vasodilation in the periphery and we can really get rid of quite a bit of heat um, that way. So we can actually increase the flow to our skin from maybe a half a liter per minute up to like eight liters per minute. So you can imagine a lot of blood volume, a lot of heat going towards the surface and really effectively using that evaporative cooling, that sweating mechanism to get rid of a ton of heat. And so that's how we get rid of the majority of our heat is by evaporation. There are some other ways. So conduction, radiation, convection, all those things you learned back in basic science class that are ways to transfer heat. Um, the body does some of that, but most effectively it really just does evaporative cooling. So, um, you know, the, the things that affect that are obviously the temperature outside and to a certain extent, the heat index, right? So in order to have evaporative cooling, you have to, you know, basically vaporize the water that is absorbing that, that heat that your body's producing so you can eliminate that. Um, but that's where you, that, that heat index, something you see those meteorologists throw in every day is kind of what's the temperature and the, what's the heat index. And that factors in the temperature plus the humidity. So obviously as the humidity goes up, makes it more challenging to evaporatively cool, right? So more challenging if it's humid outside to get that sweat to go away and then, you know, reduce your core temperature there. So as the heat index goes up, even if the temperature doesn't go up, but if the humidity goes up, it drives that heat index up and it makes it much harder for you to cool yourself. So that's why that number uh, or that value of the heat index is very important as, as, uh, as well, um, because it does affect how your body can cool. Um, 
And then, you know, what are the, the effects that you see from, from heat injury or heat emergency? So at the very low end, you can get, you know, swelling caused by some, you know, vasodilation, a little bit of leakage of that um, fluid in the periphery. So you can see swelling in your extremities. You may have experienced this if you go to the zoo and at the end of the day, you know, mm -hmm. your legs are pretty swollen or whatnot. You can get cramps, obviously. So, you know, involuntary like muscle contractions. Um, we see syncope related to heat emergencies. So obviously, you know, if you're not drinking enough fluid, you get a bunch of this vasodilation, you know, to help cool yourself. Um, and then, you know, you know, you, you're just a little dehydrated to begin the day. You're not drinking enough fluids. You know, you stand up quickly and all of a sudden you're on the ground. Um, so we see those things. Those are relatively commonly associated with kind of um, your bread and butter heat emergencies that you may see people for at outdoor events or whatnot. Uh, and the key for those people is usually kind of, you know, laying them flat, giving them some oral hydration, maybe some IV fluids. But a lot of times once they wake up, you can give them some Gatorade or other electrolyte containing uh, fluids and, you know, really make a big difference to that. What we really worry about is when you go and cross over from these kind of minimal heat emergencies to really heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Um, so heat exhaustion generally kind of 37 to 40 degrees Celsius, and we're talking core temperature. So really something you're going to struggle to get in the field. So, you know, for the most part, take all of this with a grain of salt because you're going to treat these patients based on how they present. You know, we're not doing rectal temperatures in the field. Um, you know, the forehead scanners and the temporal scanners are not going to get you a core temperature. So you're going to treat these people based on symptomatology. Um, but if you look at the actual definition, heat exhaustion is kind of 37 to 40. And once you get above 40, you're kind of in that range of heat stroke. Um, so there is some numbers that differentiate the two. Um, heat exhaustion, again, you're going to see people that are intensely thirsty, they may be dizzy and weak and have syncopal episodes or pre-syncopal episodes. And then heat exhaustion, really the, the clinical feature that you see with heat exhaustion is uh, encephalopathy. So really confusion, altered mental status. So once you've crossed from just feeling dizzy and lightheaded and all those types of things in exhaustion to kind of really having an altered person, somebody having seizures, somebody being delirious or ataxic, that encephalopathic picture, that what, that's what kind of pushes you from heat exhaustion to heat stroke. And like we talked about, heat stroke has a pretty significant mortality, about 10% associated with it. So it's something you want to recognize uh, and really treat as, as best you can and as early as you can. When we talk about heat stroke, so again, above that, that 40 degrees Celsius with the uh, encephalopathic picture, we, we talk about people um, getting that in two ways. So one is the classic heat stroke. So that's your elderly patient. It's hot outside or they don't have air conditioning in their home. Um, they're just exposed to heat for a long period of time. Uh, they have typically kind of that hot, dry skin picture. Um, and that's called, that's that classic heat stroke. And then on the flip side of that, you have what's called exertional heat stroke. So that's where you have an elevated core body temperature from doing something strenuous. So again, that's the marathoner who's out running in 85 degree or 90 degree weather for 26 miles, um, who has exertional heat stroke. You know, they get to the end of the race, they collapse, they're confused. You know, that's the, that's the exertional heat stroke patient. Generally, that's the younger person, again, who has pretty profuse sweating and has done something strenuous that's led up to this uh, kind of heat stroke picture. Um, and the reason that the, these um, patients develop these types of symptoms is really, you know, in the body, the simple way to think about this is there's some proteins or enzymes that basically function within a, a temperature range. And so once you exceed that temperature range, they just don't function as well. And so you get this like inflammatory reaction, you get this distributive shock picture, and you get these people experiencing again heat exhaustion and eventually heat stroke.
Um, so, you know, other than, you know, adult, other than kind of elderly patients and pediatric patients um, who are obviously at risk for uh, these types of things, again, we said the elderly kind of stereotypically have this classical heat stroke, whereas younger people typically more, you know, more likely to have this exertional heat stroke. Um, people who are on like cardiovascular medications uh, can also be predisposed. They may not be able to sense that their body temperature is increasing or that, you know, they're, they're dehydrated or these other types of things. People who have psychiatric illnesses from either a behavioral standpoint or some of the medications they take can cause them to be more at risk for having uh, heat-related emergencies. Um, you know, patients who have compromise to their heart. So their heart just doesn't do what everyone else's does. So we said the heart compensates by pumping more blood to the skin, doing some vasoconstriction or vasodilation at the skin to try to get rid of all this heat. People who can't do those types of things, their heart's not going to be able to increase its output. They're not going to be able to vasodilate or vasoconstrict or whatever they need to do to get rid of that heat. They're obviously at risk for not being able to get rid of that heat. And as a result, they're more likely to have heat stroke or, or heat exhaustion. There was one study that said basically 20% of non-fatal heat stroke cases um, were associated with patients on cardiovascular medications. Again, their heart's not able to accommodate, whether it's a structural heart problem or a medication-related problem, um, but they're not able to compensate for that, that you know, and, and release that heat. And as a result, they're more susceptible to these heat-related emergencies. And then obviously we talked about, you know, the elderly patients, the very young people who are bed-bound bed and not able to manage their environment are going to be at risk for this stuff too. In terms of like, you know, the presentation, we talked about kind of those symptoms for exhaustion and heat stroke, but, you know, from a more medical standpoint, we see, um, again, a picture that looks a little bit like distributive shock. So you can see hypotension, multi-system organ dysfunction, you know, kidney dysfunction. You can have, you know, heart attacks associated with this, liver injury, lung injury, all those types of things associated with almost a shock-like picture. And then maybe more importantly, uh, to kind of round this up a little bit is, you know, what do we do when we recognize that in the field? Um, so what are some of the interventions we can do? So now one of the things that we consider, um, although that's not readily available for you guys in an EMS setting is like, uh, is cold water immersion. So you may have seen this at the marathons that we've uh, had in this area is for those marathon runners who experience symptoms like this, we just dunk them in really cold water, basically. And so there's actually pretty good evidence that that's a rapid and safe way to cool people. You know, we look at ice water about one, one to three degrees Celsius, and you basically just put them in the water um, for a period of time to try to drop their temperature. You don't want to overshoot and get them too cold. You usually stop a, a few degrees above kind of a normal temperature because we know once you pull them out, they're going to get a little bit colder still. Um, but that's an effective way to do it. But that's probably not, you know, in most cases, a, a reasonable way for EMS people to cool, just based on the fact that you're not driving around with your ambulance with a giant, you know, uh, tub of water and ice in the back of it to treat random patients you happen to pick up with heat exhaustion. So the more probably reasonable thing that you can do from an EMS provider perspective is, is really kind of just enhancing the body's natural evaporative cooling. So you can put kind of, uh, you want to remove kind of constricting clothes or things that are going to keep them warm, but then you want to kind of, you know, oftentimes you can kind of wet them with kind of lukewarm or sorry, kind of room temperature or tepid water, and then basically take fans to them. So this again is just enhancing that evaporative cooling abilities. So you're putting some water on it, you're allowing that water to absorb heat, and then you're evaporatively cooling them by blowing that um, water with a fan of some sort. So that's an easy way to do it. Another easy thing to do, obviously, is just lower the temperature in your ambulance. You're able to manage the 
climate control portion of the rear of the ambulance. You can cool it down quite a bit. You want to cool it kind of as as cold as you guys can tolerate probably, but but anything certainly below the outdoor temperatures is going to be somewhat effective. Um, there's some old adages about putting ice packs, you know, on large vessels. So we used to say you should pack the, you know, groin area and the armpit area. That's probably a little bit effective, but honestly, just this, this idea of evaporative cooling and blowing a fan on them with some spritzing some water on them is actually far more effective than using those ice packs. But nonetheless, those are an options. Uh, another option is you could put some ice packs kind of in those large vessel areas. You can also put, um, you know, cold packs in like the palms and soles area where there's, you know, um, areas where you can cool them as well too. So between the two of those, those are probably the most reasonable things. Obviously you can give IV fluids. Um, these patients are often vaso uh, or so often a hypotensive or fluid down. So giving them some cold fluids will help to decrease the temperature. But again, the most effective and quickest way that you're going to have access to is again, just kind of spritzing them with water, really blowing, um, you know, air over them with a fan of some sort, turning the temperature down in your rig, uh, and then maybe applying some ice packs as a, as a last kind of good measure there um, to do that. The shorter the cooling time, the better for these patients. Um, so again, once you recognize this, especially in those heat stroke patients, we want you to manage them aggressively to try to get their temperatures down uh, because we know that the longer time that they're in you know, heat stroke, the longer time that temperature exceeds 40 degrees, they have an increased mortality associated with that. Again, uh, so some electrolyte containing fluids or IV or oral hydration as they can tolerate is certainly gonna be reasonable. And again, a, a normal fluid challenge that we would do here, a 20 per kilo bolus, you know, one to two liters, something like that is very reasonable for these patients um, to get this. You know, in terms of, you know, beyond EMS care, we do worry about a little bit about their electrolytes. Um, so sometimes you have to worry about the sodium and uh, stuff like that. So that's something you're not going to be able to check in the field. That's something we'll watch in the hospital as well. Obviously, if they're, you know, encephalopathic and they're confused, you have to worry about airway management in these patients as well. Um, so that's something you'll have to monitor. Do they need supportive oxygen therapy? You know, if they're having, you know, if they're unresponsive and stuff, do you need to manage their airway more aggressively. So those are all things to consider as well. Uh, you know, in the hospital, they may get intubated and, and stuff like that. Um, the use of antipyretics, so like Tylenol and stuff, are really not effective for this type of uh, elevated body temperature. So that's really for that, you know, fever from an infectious stuff. But giving patients um, with, you know, heat stroke Tylenol or other antipyretics is really not an effective way to manage their temperatures in this case. And it just doesn't really work. And then just, you know, a last parting note, you know, in children, really, again, they have a greater surface area to mass ratio, uh, they absorb more heat from radiation, they have a lower circulating blood volume, and they don't sweat quite as much. Um, so they're obviously just like we talked about, you know, in one of those at risk populations for suffering from heat stroke, heat exhaustion, um, but the management is relatively similar. Again, really emphasizing that evaporative cooling, which is probably the quickest and easiest way to get them down that you're going to have access to in the field. Um, so that's kind of what we wanted to talk about here. Um, so again, a lot of those things seem like common sense, but just reinforcing a couple of those key topics really again, uh, just cold you know, water and you know, fans is going to be a, a really reliable, effective way to get people cool and just looking for the signs and symptoms of patients who would have heat exhaustion, heat stroke and understanding that they can be, you know, very sick uh, from that and that managing that heat related emergency in a quick fashion is going to be critical to, to the treatment of those types of patients.
Um, and so with that, you know, I'll turn it back to Jeff. I appreciate the chance to talk and hopefully this will be a timely, um, you know, educational uh, few minutes here based on our current uh, time in the seasons. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Chin. I uh, appreciate all the knowledge you're able to impart. Uh, let me reiterate, it's, it's spritzing your patient with water, uh, probably not a reason to uh, stretch a line off the engine uh, to douse them that heavily. So take it easy on them, how much water you're pouring on them. Uh, any transport considerations with these patients or pretty much yeah, as no, available to? Yeah, there's no specialty hospital for this. You know, obviously if they have a, they're a post-RASC patient or something like that, then you would go to those specialty things, but just a heat-related emergency, you know, just the closest, most appropriate, you know, reasonable hospital that, uh, is fine. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, you know, and one of the, you know, as we were prepping for this for today and, and discussing it amongst the team, one thing we noted was really with a lot of these, these summer and outdoor activity related uh, events, there weren't a lot of CQI cases uh, that came up, which uh, either speaks to two things. One, you guys are doing an excellent job treating these patients out in the field. Uh, no one's had much for issues with them. Uh, or two, they're just you know not as common or not too exciting, and we're getting through them very well. Uh, but in a transition over to our next topic in the you know in our fun in the sun series here, uh, we're going to transition from sweating the water out to swallowing that water down. We're going to take a look at some of our drowning patients. Uh, not too long ago, we did update some of our guidelines regarding drowning patients, and we'll certainly get into that in a little bit. Uh, but we do have a CQI case involved here. So I'm going to grab Linda and Dr. Grover and kind of let them do a bit of a deep dive here into the CQIP case as well as uh, a lot of the pathophysic management for our drowning patients. So Linda, Dr. Grover, over to you guys. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, you know, living in the Milwaukee area, in the suburban area, we certainly have plenty of... Um, water resources, lakes, rivers, ponds, pools. Uh, I think we're known as a third coast. Um, and um, even though we're talking about summer um, emergencies, I think as we discussed that, it's, it's good to remember that a lot of these things happen year round in our community as well. Um, this case that we're gonna talk about today is, is, uh, is a great case. Um, it was not a patient safety event, but it was such an interesting good case that highlighted uh, uh, three different topics that uh, were just great for discussion, uh, which led us to have a, a meeting with the crew and discuss thoroughly the events of the case um, and how they manage the determination of resuscitation, how they manage the airway management, and in this case as well, refractory VFib. So um, to set up the case, this was uh, a common scenario actually. It was a, a police chase where the vehicle actually ended up uh, in the lake and the occupant driver in the vehicle was submerged for approximately 35 minutes uh, before being rescued. Um, when that patient was brought up, they were in a, um, a V-fib rhythm. Uh, they had multiple shocks given and uh, there was copious amounts of what they described as red tinge water and sputum pouring out of the mouth and nose. Um, so they followed our guideline, which had been revised uh, about six months before this. And per the 35 minutes of time, they contacted online medical control, 
for guidance. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Grover. Thanks very much. Um, so we are going to talk about drowning injuries, um, kind of go over some of the epidemiology and stats, definitions, pathophys, and then look at some data and prognostic factors, and then look at our protocols as well. Um, this is a really interesting case, very difficult case to manage, especially in the field. And I think it was done exceptionally well in this case. And we'll talk about that at the end as well too. For some statistics, nationally, there are about 3,800 deaths per year um, due to drowning, and this is excluding like floods and other natural disasters. In Wisconsin, according to the Department of Health Services, um, over about the past 10 years, we seem to average about 55 deaths, and that's very consistent. This mostly applies to children, like ages one to four, and residential swimming pool drownings. And then the next highest risk group would be adolescents and young adults, and that's in natural bodies of water. And I just wanna highlight that this is really a problem that affects younger populations, which is unfortunate. So how is drowning defined? Historically, there were a bunch of terms that got thrown around like near drowning, wet drowning, dry drowning, passive drowning, saltwater drowning, secondary drowning, and we don't use any of these terms anymore. They're very nonspecific. They're not focused on the important physiology and generally the management is the same, especially pre-hospitally. Now we like to think about it as defining drowning based on the outcome, whether or not there was morbidity or mortality associated with it. And to put it very simply, we like to kind of put drowning into two categories, fatal drowning or not fatal drowning. So what happens when somebody actually, you know, gets in the water and starts to drown? There's a period of panic um, you know, they struggle, hold their breath. Um, initially, there may be some water swallowed, which can cause vomiting and aspiration. And eventually, you just aspirate in a whole bunch of water uh, once your body can't deal with it any longer. This can lead to laryngospasm. Um, and then you get the hypoxia and then cardiac arrest follows shortly after that. What's actually happening on the level of the lungs is initially when that water is pulled in, you have the water that washes out all this surfactant. And that's a protein within the lungs that helps keep the alveoli open. This leads to alveolar collapse. You have decreased lung compliance. You get a ventilation perfusion mismatch and then interpulmonary shunting, which leads to this hypoxia. The other thing that happens is when you suck in all this water is that there's an osmotic gradient created that directly damages your alveolar capillary membranes causing large fluid and electrolyte shifts. And so normally these airways can be quite bloody or blood tinged as was the case um, in the case that we talked about. So with the effects of the lungs in mind, um, your treatment priorities really one, two, and three is airway, airway, and airway because your morbidity and mortality from drowning is secondary to hypoxia. The rest of it, generally speaking, is supportive care but we really have to emphasize um, that airway and breathing is your number one priority. In your non-cardiac arrest patients um, that doesn't need an, an immediate airway intervention, again, the treatment mostly supportive and monitoring for deterioration. You're maintaining their oxygen saturation, um, using supplemental O2 as needed. Look at their work of breathing, consider non-invasive management for pulmonary edema and treating hypotension. And I specifically bring up pulmonary edema and hypotension because those are poor prognostic signs in alive patients. And these are the people who are likely to deteriorate on you. 
overall, regardless of how they look, they should be transported to the hospital, even if they look fine. And that's because this deterioration can actually happen hours out, and so they need prolonged monitoring. For the arrest patients, as we've kind of alluded to, this is really standard ACLS with an emphasis on prioritizing and protecting the airway. If they're hypothermic, which can happen in the cold waters, um, the emphasis shifts a little bit uh, towards rewarming and this leads to a huge potential tangent of management of hypothermic arrest patients. And there's actually a lot of caveats and cool physiologic considerations, um, but that's possibly a topic for another time. Looking at some of the prognostic factors here of submerged and drowning patients, to be honest, the data is all over the place, even between large meta-analyses. Um, and even the things in cardiac arrest that we usually look at, like age, initial rhythm, bystander CPR, witness arrest, it's not clear how much these factors matter for outcomes. And then with drowning, there are other factors to consider, like submersion time, water temperature, patient temperature, and then historically it's been like fresh water versus salt water. And again, we really can't definitively comment on how much these factors matter. That said, Regarding submersion time, there's a general consensus and trend that this is the best prognostic factor um, to look at. And really, again, there's lots of data out there, but survival begins to dramatically drop off the cliff in patients who have been submerged over about 10 minutes. So keeping that in mind, the, the link here between survival and submersion time, most protocols use submersion time as an indication to either work or not work a drowning arrest patient. And I wanna go over um, a couple of these protocols at least, or um, the guidelines. So again, different data out there, different guidelines. Um, according to the Wilderness Medicine Society, this is really an authority on environmental injuries, including drowning. They did an update to their guidelines in 2016, and their recommendations are really based on 2011 literature review and consensus statement that also utilizes water temperature to kind of point you in the right direction. Their recommendations um, for an arresting patient is that if the water the patient arrested in is warmer than six degrees, then survival is unlikely if they've been submerged longer than 30 minutes. If the water is warmer than six degrees, this is Celsius, that's about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, if it's colder than that, then they are unlikely to survive if they've been submerged longer than 90 minutes. And that's really the dichotomy here, warm water versus cold water. The idea being that patients have a better chance of survival in cold water. And again, this is Wilderness Medicine Society, um, but those recommendations are not um, taken across the board. Looking at another study done in 2016, this is a systematic review and meta-analysis that looked at about 2,500 patients um, and their submersion duration. They found actually quite good outcomes in patients who were submerged for less than five minutes. And if they were submerged longer than about 25 minutes, these were almost invariably fatal. And that was regardless of water temperature. So some societies and state protocols will actually use this 30 minute cutoff for initiating and continuing resuscitation. Um, the Wisconsin state protocol uses 60 minutes submersion time. Um, and that kind of puts us into a talking about our, the OEM drowning protocol. And so let's go over that quickly. In patients who are obviously alive, um, you know, universal care, you move them to a warm environment, remove any wet clothes, you rewarm them. Um, and a 
special caveat here to a cervical collar, which is only indicated the same way it's indicated in trauma patients. Um, so there's no differences here. Not all drowning patients need a cervical collar. If they have a pulse, you obviously transport them. And again, we talked about this due to kind of the potential for long-term deterioration for monitoring. If they're in cardiac arrest, then you have to look at submersion time. According to the OEM protocol, if it's greater than 60 minutes, no resuscitation is indicated. Less than 60 minutes, you get into standard ACLS. And then as we kind of talked about with the case, um, in this you know, 30 to 60 minute window, usually worked on scene, but we certainly emphasize you know, using medical control early because there are other caveats uh, that may change this decision. And then if it's less than the protocol says 25 minutes, then this is more a load and go situation. And that again is due to the potential for more positive outcomes in patients who have been submerged for a less amount of time. And kind of to bring it back to our case a little bit, again, 25 year old female, PNB, 30 minute submersion time in refractory V-fib, got amio, got epi, and they're having a lot of trouble with the airway due to the copious secretions. I think this was really all done correctly. Again, a very difficult case, especially from the airway standpoint. You're in this 30 minute submersion window, you follow ACLS protocol, um, and then medical control was transported and they had a, a good discussion about working it on scene versus transporting the hospital. Um, and the doctor on the other end of the line recommended transport to a ROSC facility. Um, and if you listen to the call, they specifically talk about the potential for ECMO in these patients. Um, and they also cited you know, refractory VFib and also the patient age as considerations for transport, which I think are both very appropriate in this situation. It's kind of the end of the portion. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts on the case that they'd like to share. I have a thought, Dr. Grover. Um, in listening to, I know you and I both listened to this, this um, exchange with online medical control. It was really great communication. And the crew was um, relaying the difficulty with suctioning, that that was their approach was continuous suctioning. And I think they suctioned a half a liter of fluid and online medical control uh, made the recommendation to um, put an advanced airway for, for um, what they uh, described as better suctioning and preventing reflux back into the airway. Uh, and I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. Yeah, again, a, a very difficult airway to deal with because you have, it sounds like anyway, you have fluid both coming from the airway itself due to all that aspiration, but also this potential for reflux from the stomach. Because again, these patients often swallow a bunch of water as well. Um, so using an advanced airway to hopefully block off everything coming from the stomach may make it a little bit easier to just suction out the water that's potentially in the airway. Um, so that's, I think, with a consideration with the advanced airway. All right, terrific. Uh, thanks, Dr. Grover. Thanks, Linda. Linda, anything else you want to touch on the guideline updates from 18? Or did we hit those pretty well? Uh, pretty good. I think just the reminder is that um, our guidelines, every time we do the updates, we review the literature. Uh, we're, we're seeking out what best practice is during that review. And this was an example of how the previous um, guidance was more based on um, temperature. And this was the same with our hypothermia protocol, actually. And then um, with, with the review of the current 
data and best practice, it was more guided by submersion. And um, as Dr. Grover described, we work that into our guideline and try to make it um, clear uh, to follow for our providers because we know these are stressful situations. Um, so, and I, I thought it was great that the crew, when they contacted online medical control, you could tell they knew the guideline, and um, they were very they were very clear um, on the direction they were going. And and I and I thought that was great. Terrific and an awesome work by that crew. Uh, a great call and a good example of some heads up thinking and utilizing that online medical control. So. Uh, as we're wrapping up for the day, I will open the floor to anybody who's got any final thoughts, comments, concerns, snide remarks, messages to put out there. I don't see any rapidly disappearing mute signs, so take the silence as acquiescence to the end of the podcast. I thank everybody for joining us today. Thanks to the panel. Thanks to all of you for listening, and I look forward to our next session next month. Thanks, everybody. Stay safe.